That was a breezy little video, wasn't it? Summer is in fact here. Um, thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. Um, excited about where we are. I don't know when the shift takes place for you into the summer months. For some, it's graduation. Uh, if you have family members who are uh, in high school, um, for some of us, it's June 1st. That's me. The minute the calendar flips to June, summer is all on. It's free game. Uh, for others of you, you actually follow the actual calendar and you're waiting for the calendar to tell you that it's summer. But either way, we're moving into summer as a church. Um, and what that means is that this morning we're going to begin a new sermon series. Uh, over the past couple summers, if you were around, we've done some pretty interesting things with our summers around here. Last summer, uh, we walked through the, the virtues that make up uh, the fruit of the Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Galatia. And so we walked through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, one by one, and, and took a look at how the gospel informs those virtues. The year before that, we walked through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and we got a glimpse of what it looks like to be a church that remains faithful on the gospel path, pointing people to Jesus, and in contrast, what it looks like to veer off of that path. And so for the last two summers, we've spent some time looking at what it means to live the Christian life both individually and corporately as the church. This summer, we're going to do something unique in and of itself. We're going to gather up as if this were camp, summer camp. We're going to gather in the cabin every week, and we're going to dive into the book of Psalms for the next 10 weeks in a series that we're entitling uh, Songs of the Savior. And we'll get into why the, the title is what it is in just a moment. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to spend time in the book of Psalms, and not just any 10 Psalms, but rather, check this out. This upcoming fall, we're going to get into the book of Hebrews. We're going to spend the fall and the spring leading all the way up to Easter Sunday in the book of Hebrews. And so you'll want to stick around for that. The book of Hebrews is phenomenal. Not that there are books of the Bible that are not phenomenal, but the, the book of Hebrews just rules. So stick around for that. You won't want to miss that. But in studying ahead for our time in the book of Hebrews, something interesting began to surface. If you read the book of Hebrews and you're nerdy like me, you begin to notice that the book of Psalms is cited a number of times. In fact, the book of Psalms is cited 10 different times throughout the course of the, the writing of the book of Hebrews. Meanwhile, we had set aside exactly 10 weeks to rest in the Psalms this summer as a church. And so we thought, why not dive into those 10 particular Psalms referenced in the book of Hebrews as a way of laying some groundwork for where we're going to go as a church this fall. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, what that means for us is that our time in the scriptures this summer is only going to enrich our time in the scriptures this fall and this spring. So that when we get to the book of Hebrews this fall, you'll actually be able to go back and listen to podcasts from this very series that we're starting this morning and see how all of those pieces fit together. Old and New Testament colliding with one another. Should be really cool. The book of Psalms. One of the most beloved books in, in all of the Bible. Many of you spend your quiet times in this book of the Bible. Martin Luther once said this. He said, in the Psalms, we look into the heart of all the saints and we seem to gaze into fair pleasure gardens, into heaven itself indeed, where blooms in sweet, refreshing, gladdening flowers of holy and happy thoughts about God and all his benefits. That just sounds glorious, doesn't it? The book of Psalms. It's been referred to as the hymn book of the Old Testament, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, his glory, and his grace. The Psalms were sung in the temple by God's people as they gathered in corporate worship. 
The, the book of Psalms were used in private times of devotion, like many of us in this room have used this book of the Bible. We're talking about a book that's considered so important that little pocket-sized New Testaments usually include it, though it's not part of the New Testament. You ever thought about that? A number of hymns have been written based on passages found in this book of the Bible. We'll likely sing many of them throughout the course of this summer. Churches that are on the more liturgical side incorporate uh, responsive readings from this book of the Bible. And rightly so. We're talking about a book that not only informs us, but transforms us. Mind, heart, and will. Tremper Longman in his commentary says this. He says, The Psalms appeal to the whole person. They demand a total response. The Psalms inform our intellect. They arouse our emotions. They direct our wills and they stimulate our imaginations. When we read the Psalms with faith, we come away changed and not simply informed. I love that. In the Psalms, we come face to face with both God and ourselves. We get a full picture of the beauty of who God is and who He is for us. And we encounter the fullness of the human condition and experience. The range of emotions from lament to praise and everything in between. The, the reason we've entitled this series Songs of the Savior is this. Uh, one, the author of Hebrews tells us that these 10 Psalms that we're going to look at this summer ultimately point to Jesus. But not only that, the entire book of Psalms ultimately points us to Jesus. Again, we're talking about the hymn book of the Old Testament, a, a collection of songs to be sung by God's people in response to his goodness, glory, and grace. And if you've read the Bible, you know that God's goodness, glory, and grace are most surely revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And so this summer, we have an opportunity to sing psalms of praise to Jesus as Savior, King, and coming judge. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of lament to Him as our high priest and advocate. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of thanksgiving to Him for who He is and what He's done for us. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of remembrance to Him as we survey all of redemptive history that finds its fulfillment in Him. We have an opportunity to sing psalms of confidence to Him because He is trustworthy. And we have an opportunity to sing psalms of wisdom to him because he is wisdom personified and the source of all wisdom. You could say this, the heart sings of that in which it delights. And so the hope of this series is that we would find ourselves delighting in God, that we would see his goodness, glory, and grace revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, and that in seeing and delighting in him, that our lives would become more and more a song of praise. And so it's with that being said, that if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 2. It's the first of those 10 Psalms cited in the book of Hebrews. And so that's where we're going to start this series this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab that Bible, open up to this morning's passage. One of the thicker books of the Bible, somewhere around the middle, should be a little easier to find than others. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's hard to understand, take that Bible as the churches give to you. Enjoy it this summer. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, there's no question that our hearts sing of those things and those people in which we delight. We can't help ourselves. We're all worshipers. The question is not so much, are we worshipers, but rather, who or what is the object of our affection ultimately? And so I pray that you would stir our affections as a result of our time in the Scriptures this morning, as a result of our time throughout the course of this series, that we would find ourselves delighting in you more and more, that we would see your goodness, your glory, your grace, 
revealed most surely in the face of Jesus Christ. And that it would awaken in us a song, not just with our lips, but with our lives. That we would find ourselves changed and that that song would pour out from us and that others would be drawn into it as a result. Holy Spirit, would you do that? It's not something I can do in my own power. Would you awaken our minds, stir our affections, enliven our imaginations as we do to Psalm chapter 2 this morning. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus, whom this psalm ultimately points to. Amen. So, Psalm chapter 2. It's what's known as a, a royal psalm, a kingship psalm. Kingship is a big deal in the unfolding story of God's people. If you go back to Genesis chapter 17, and really it goes back further than that, all the way to creation, this idea, uh, this theme of kingship. But going back to Genesis chapter 17, God promised Abraham that kings would come forth from him. If you read the book of Deuteronomy, you find a lot of laws having to do with how the king should conduct himself. If you read much of the Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is made up of historical books that lay out the rise and fall of various kings, right? Hard to keep your mind connected to all of the names and dates. There's so many of them. David and Solomon being the most famous of the bunch. It's not surprising that we would encounter language having to do with kingship in the Psalms. More particularly, this psalm is considered to be a coronation psalm. We're not really sure if it was used at David or Solomon's coronations as king, but, but we know that it was used likely a number of times in repetition. It became liturgical, so to speak, for God's people as they would anoint new kings. And so picture in your mind that, that moment when the crown would be placed on the king's head, when the king was anointed into his uh, place of leadership. That picture will be significant as we talk about how this psalm is meant to be sung to Jesus. So store that away in your mind. Looking at the first few verses of Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In the, in the ancient world, and we see it even present day at times, when, when a new king was crowned, it was seen as an opportunity to wage war against that king and his kingdom. Makes sense, right? You have a new king whose leadership is not yet proven, so why not put some boots on the ground and see what might happen if you go up against that unproven, newly appointed king and his people? The psalmist here is describing the rebellion of the nations against God and his anointed king, the king of Israel. There's a battle of wills taking place in Psalm chapter 2. And it presents the reader with a massive question. Who ultimately rules the world? It's a question that we, we wrestle with even today. Who rules the world? Some would say it's God. Others would say it's a number of any other gods that represent other world religions. Some would say that the self rules the world, that we determine meaning and purpose in and of ourselves. This idea of autonomous living a life of self-determination, and on and on we could go. Who ultimately rules the world? That's the question that Psalm 2 presents. In its original context, the question was, is it the kings of the earth, or is it God and his anointed? We get an implicit answer to that question right off the bat in verse 1, do we not? Notice that the psalmist uses the language of nations and peoples plotting in vain. The question in verse 1 assumes that those who rebel against God will not succeed in their endeavor. That God will obtain complete victory over his enemies through his Davidic king. That the kings of the earth are in hostile opposition to God. According to verse 3, 
And maybe you felt this way uh, somewhere along the way. They perceive he and his anointed king to be a threat to their own freedom, their own autonomy. In fact, the language of bonds and cords in verse 3 refers to the, the leather straps that were part of the yoke that kept oxen in place. They saw God as a threat to their own freedom, a slave driver of sorts, much like many in the world today who view God as an, an enemy of their own joy, a capital K killjoy who's out to rain on everyone's fun. Maybe that's the picture you bring of God into this very room this morning, that God is perceived as a a threat to living a life of self-determination, a life of self-rule. And so these kings look to do away with the threat, which again, according to verse 1, is an exercise in futility. No matter how determined people are to overthrow God's rule, they will not succeed in the end. The psalmist even goes so far in verse 4 as to transport us to the very throne of God itself in order to give us God's perspective on such attempts to overthrow his kingship. Look at verse 4. It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. We're talking about a mocking laughter here. This is probably not the picture that you envision of God often as you, as you sit with the scriptures. But it makes perfect sense in light of what we encounter in verses 1 through 3. Who do these earthly kings think they are in believing that they can overthrow God's rule? The God of the universe. The God who created all of this in the first place. They are as verse 2 says, of the earth, and he is, as verse 4 says, in the heavens. It's not even fair. The playing field is not level in Psalm 2. Isaiah says it this way, chapter 40 of his writing, verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlines like fine dust. He goes on to say in verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And then going on, verses 21 through 23 of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, God, who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants, that's you and me, are like grasshoppers. That's how small we are. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in and brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the universe as emptiness. This is much of what we talked about when we worked our way through the book of Daniel back in the fall. If you weren't around for that, I encourage you to go listen to that. It helps to connect the dots to Psalm 2 fairly well. This idea that man could overthrow God is laughable to God himself, and rightly so. We're, we're so incredibly small compared to him. Patrick Miller in his commentary says this about God's laughter. He says, In a strange way, it is one of the most assuring sounds in the whole Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, as it relativizes even the largest of human claims for ultimate control over the affairs of peoples and nations. The fiercest terror is made the object of laughter and derision and thus is rendered impotent to frighten those who hear the laughter of God in the background. I love that. The, <clears throat> God's laughter in the face of evil is meant to comfort us as his people. That he will not be dethroned. Those who bend their knee to him as king will not lose in the end. <clears throat> he goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, Then he, God, will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury 
saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That it's not just God's laughter that's reserved for those who refuse to bow. It's also his wrath. It's his fury. Now let me stop here for a second because I would imagine that there are probably some who come into this room this morning and may be inclined to say, that's exactly what's wrong with religion. Wrath and judgment. That's it. Which is really easy to say until you want justice. I've said this before. If I were to come up to anyone after this service and just cold cock them right in the face, there would be a demand for justice, right? Nobody is letting that go. No one is sweeping that under the rug. None of us is screaming for murderers and rapists to be let off the hook and out into the community. In fact, for any judge to sweep those kind of crimes under the rug would make that judge unfit to remain a judge. He's not a good judge anymore. Now take that line of thinking and apply it to God. God is infinitely more glorious and holy than any human judge. And the crime of rejecting him as king, an act of cosmic treason, is an infinitely heinous crime. God's character is at stake here. For God to sweep crimes of cosmic treason under the rug would make him unfit as both judge and king. He should be disbarred right on the spot if that's how he approaches sin, particularly that of cosmic treason. And so he promises a punishment that fits the crime. He promises to pour out his wrath on those who reject his kingship in favor of self-rule. Coming back to verses 5 and 6. At this point, we, we should all begin to scratch our heads a little bit. The language God uses is a little strange. Notice that he doesn't say, in, in my fury, I'm coming for you. Notice that he doesn't say in his wrath, you and I, we're about to go a few rounds in the octagon. Rather, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've established my rule and reign through the Davidic king who's seated on the throne of Israel. Should the kings of the earth have been terrified that God could at any moment unleash his wrath through Israel? Absolutely. Make no mistake about that. But you could see how it might not come across as quite so terrifying and compelling as God himself unleashing his wrath directly upon these insubordinate kings. Who is this king of Zion through whom God will execute divine judgment on his enemies? We'll get there momentarily. But for now, let's keep plowing away. Verse 7 brings about a change of scene as we move from the throne of heaven to the coronation of the Lord's anointed king. Verse 7 says this. says, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here we get the anointed king himself speaking and he describes his relationship with, with God as that of a father and a son. It's the kind of language that you find in the covenant that God made with David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where we're told this. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That's Solomon. And he shall build a house for my name. He's talking about the temple there. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Listen to this. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. So we're talking about the language of adoption here. The king declared to be a son of the living God. Coming back to verse 7. Today I have begotten you. That phrase is not referring so much to the king's birth, but rather as the day of his coronation. The day he's appointed as king, anointed as king. And here's the interesting thing. The language of sonship goes back even further than, than David. In the days of enslavement in Egypt, Israel, God's people, uh, were referred to as God's son, God's firstborn. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 4. And so you have this adoption language, this sonship language, being declared about the king and the people. You, you see this traced throughout the Bible, this theme that the king is actually a representative of the people themselves. A king who represents the people. Sound familiar? We're getting there. Again, soon enough, God continues to say to his anointed king, verses 8 and 9, he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's interesting. The, the pharaohs of ancient Egypt would literally write the names of their enemies on clay pots. And then they would proceed to smash those pots. The vessel would be in so many pieces that it couldn't be put back together. It was a symbolic way of declaring ultimate, complete victory over one's enemies. God promises complete victory to his anointed king. We're talking about worldwide domination here. Ask of me, God says, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth, your possession. Which begs the question, was there never a Davidic king who asked God for this possession of the ends of the earth? I mean, it's not like Israel has conquered the world, right? It's not like there's a, a Davidic king who has established his throne forever. Or is there? Moving on to verse 10. Now therefore... O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If what the psalmist is saying about God is true, if what God himself is saying about, about him is true, then the appropriate response is to bow in worship, according to verses 10 through 12. To bow to God and his anointed king. To kiss the son, verse 12, which is symbolic for submission. That to refuse to do so is to incur his wrath, while to do so is to receive his blessing, to enjoy his blessing. There is no, there is no middle ground. Think in terms of a, a storm cellar. In, in Psalm 2, God is both the, the storm and the shelter. He's the storm for those who reject his kingship and he's the shelter for those willing to bow. A refuge, a comfort in the face of evil. Which presents us with a question. The same question that was presented to the original audience of this psalm. Namely, whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? It's interesting. Psalm 2, if you read it in its original context alone, it leaves much to be desired. I mean, where is this Davidic king, who, Davidic king who will possess the ends of the earth? Where is this Davidic king who will execute divine judgment on God's enemies? Where is this Davidic king who will provide refuge for God's people? This psalm can be related to any Davidic king in the line of David coming out of that covenant that God made 
with David. The problem is that none of those kings in the lineage of David, including David himself, fulfilled the promises of Psalm chapter 2. The monarchy was destroyed. God's people were taken into exile. Post-exile, there were no more Davidic kings. The people were left wondering if the promises that God made would ever find their fulfillment. Where's the ultimate hope of Psalm 2? Where's this glorious king through whom God's promised victory for his people will come and the judgment upon his enemies will come as well? You've been around this church long enough. You know where we're going, right? It's not just a good Sunday school answer. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. Jesus is the king in the lineage of David through whom God has established his eternal throne. Matthew begins his gospel account with these words. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He starts off his gospel account saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, in the lineage of King David. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He starts off his letter to the church in Rome. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, in the lineage of David. Coming back to Psalm 2, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That Jesus is that king in the lineage of David. The death conquering, sin conquering, Satan conquering king whose kingdom will never end. But he's not only the king of verse 6. He's also the son of verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Where do we hear that kind of language? Again, if you fast forward to the Gospels, Luke's Gospel account begins this way. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The famous encounter between the angel and Mary. We read this oftentimes at Christmas. It says this, The angel said to her, to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. There's the sonship language of Psalm 2. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There's the kingship language of Psalm 2. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You even see the coronation language a couple chapters later when you get to Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 3. It's the same kind of language found in Psalm 2 verse 7. It says this, Luke 3 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him, on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Going back to Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promised son and king found in Psalm 2. Yet here's the deal. People didn't like the kind of son and king that Jesus declared himself to be. He faced great opposition. The Pharisees, Herod, Pontius Pilate, and on and on we could go. He was ridiculed for the suffering piece of his sonship and kingship. The people wanted a king who would conquer Rome, yet Jesus came to conquer the greater enemies of Satan, sin, and death. The people wanted a king who would bring God's wrath Yet in his first coming, Jesus came to bear God's wrath. That's the beauty of the gospel, to represent his people. He lived the life we could never live. He bent his knee in perfect submission to God the Father. 
He died the death that you and I deserve to die. Our cosmic treason was put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, saving us from God's wrath by absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. It's a beautiful piece of the gospel. But if you're a Christian, when you read Psalm 2, you have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says, Romans 8.1. There is no wrath for those in Christ. There is no fury for those in Christ. Maybe that's what you need to sit with this morning. Maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe your, your hearts failed to grab hold of that in this moment. Jesus died our death. And he didn't stay dead. On the other side of his suffering, glory. That Jesus is the resurrected king whose kingdom shall never end. That no one can stop the spread of his kingdom. Though many have tried 2,000 years later. Jesus said so in Matthew 28. That famous passage known as the Great Commission where he starts off saying to his disciples, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But the gospel continues to go forth. The king is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot do a thing about it. Isn't that glorious? And one day, the Bible tells us, the king will return to make everything sad untrue. On that day, he won't be coming to bear God's wrath, but rather to bring God's wrath, to judge his enemies in order to create eternal peace and refuge, going back to verse 12, for his followers. You get a really good visual of that in Revelation 19, which actually references this morning's psalm. You get the language of Jesus striking down the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron, treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. In other words, those who refuse to take shelter in the person and work of Jesus, for them, Jesus will become the final storm, the Bible says. And so again, we have to sit with this question. Whose side are we on? Is he your storm or your shelter? If you're not a Christian, let me, let me just stop for a second and say, Jesus is a really good king. He really is. And so I invite you this morning to receive him as both Savior and king. He's not an enemy of our joy. You and I, we're the greatest enemies of our own joy. Every time we choose the path of self-determination over the path of glad submission to King Jesus, we function as enemies of our own joy. Those moments are usually rooted in one of two things, either pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, or unbelief, thinking too little of God. The remedy in both cases is to fix our eyes on the true King Jesus, to see him in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. Which leads me to one final question this morning. And it's a question that, that I want us to wrestle with each week of this series. To kind of bring back around this, this theme, this thinking of the book of Psalms as the hymn book of the Old Testament. If it's true that the heart sings in that of which it delights, then what's our song meant to be as the church? What are we meant to delight in as we considered Psalm 2? I'll offer you a couple of lyrics that I think are, are worthy of being put on the track, so to speak. The first is this. He is our refuge in the midst of evil, sin, and brokenness. 
That if you find yourself discouraged by the enemy this morning, if you find yourself discouraged in the battle against sin and unbelief in your own life, if you find yourself discouraged by the effects of living in a fallen, broken world, Psalm 2 calls you to take refuge in him, to come to him. That he, yes, he's the sovereign king of the universe, and yet he is approachable. It's the beauty of Christianity, that we can come to him knowing that he can and will minister to our deepest needs. And the second lyric coming out of Psalm 2 is this. Not only is he our refuge in the midst of evil, sin, and brokenness, but he is our king who demands our souls, our lives, our all. I'm honestly not sure where this idea came from that you can embrace Jesus as Savior without embracing him as Lord. It really doesn't make any sense, biblically speaking, that the suffering son and the risen king are one and the same. That following Jesus will cost you and I our own glory. Following Jesus will cost you and I our own crowns and scepters. Following Jesus will cost you and I our own dreams and ambitions. The one who bought us with his precious blood, he gets to establish our dreams and ambitions. And here's the beautiful thing about it. If you know him, you know that's the best possible way to live. You know that he's a good king and and that to submit to his leading is actually to chase after your own joy. He is. He's a good king. He's the kind of king who, in this real life story tale, fairy tale, would shed his own blood in order to rescue you and I from the dragon. He's the kind of king who will wipe away sadness forever and establish the most glorious happily ever after you and I could possibly imagine. That's the king of Psalm 2. And so let me ask you, are these lyrics part of the song of your heart? Are they the song that you're singing as you came into this place this morning? As you leave this place moments from now? Do these words resonate with your heart? He is my refuge in the midst of evil, sin, and brokenness. He is my shelter. He is my king, worthy of my soul, my life, my allegiance. We have a song to sing, and not just in the coming moments as we move into a time of reflection, but a song that we carry with us as we leave this place, each and every one of us, that we have an opportunity to sing with our very lives of a God in whom we can take refuge and in whom others can take refuge. We have an opportunity to sing with our lives of a God worthy of our glad submission, whom we're happy to bend our knee to and to call others to bend their knee as well. And so I invite you to spend the next few moments considering these lyrics that make up the song of the church found in Psalm 2. And then we'll move into a time of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread here representing Jesus' broken body and we dip it in the cup representing His shed blood. Kind of crazy to think that in the receiving of those elements, the King of Psalm 2 is present with His people by His Spirit. How cool is that? 